All right. Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Welcome back to Community Church. We're so glad that you are here to worship with us, pray with us, fellowship with us, um, to just be the church with us. And what a great time of worship we had this morning. Uh, thank you, Alex and Maddie. That was a beautiful time of worship. Uh, this morning, we're going to be jumping back into our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. And we're going to try to just go ahead and cover the entire chapter. So all 32 verses of chapter 15. And so don't be scared. I know some of y'all are thinking, man, I've heard him go for an hour on half that many verses. But we're going to try not to do that. We'll be respectful of your time. But Luke 15 is really one of the most popular, one of the most revered chapters in all of Scripture, really. And so when you look at Luke 15, and the reason why I wanted to take this as one teaching uh, the entire chapter is because it's really one parable that we see illustrated in three parts. And so you could say uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. As J. Vernon McGee says, it's really three pictures in one frame. And I like, I like how he said that, three pictures in one frame. So if we were to take that analogy, then we would say that picture number one is verses one through seven, in the parable of the lost sheep. Now, you can also find that over in Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. Picture number two in this parable will be verses 8 through 10, and that's in the parable of the lost coin. That's only found here in the Gospel of Luke. Much like picture number three, which is the larger portion of the parable, verses 11 through 32, in the parable of the lost coin, again, only seen here in Luke. And so think of this parable like a song. Okay, it's a song that has three verses in it, but it has this overarching chorus of the Trinity that rings throughout the entire song as it relates to redemption. Okay, so we could look at it like this and say that God the Son is the shepherd who gathers the sheep in the first part of our parable. We could see that God the Holy Spirit is the one who lights the lamp. He's the one who sweeps the house, if you will, in the second picture in this parable. And then lastly, in the third part, the parable of the lost son, we see God the Father, who of course is the one who grants gifts to his children, right? So you could say that we see the entire picture of redemption in all three parts of this parable. What I mean is we see the total picture of salvation. We see justification. We see sanctification. And we see glorification all pictured here in this one parable that has three distinct parts. And so, fascinating portion of Scripture. So let's pray again quickly, and then we'll get into our text. We love you, Lord. Thank you again so much for a beautiful time of worship. Thank you for the fellowship here at Community Church. And I just thank you for all who are gathered around your word this morning. Lord, we just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would guide us into all truth. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth this morning. For we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we'll read it and then we'll talk about it. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Now the second part of our parable starts in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And lastly, the parable of the lost son, starting in verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. And I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, and you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. All right. What a fascinating portion of Scripture. And we're going to be careful here, because if, if we don't be careful, we could get hung up in the minutia of all that is going on here. And there's a lot. And so this is another reason why we have sermon-based community groups. We will dive in deeper during that time of discussion on Wednesday. But we, you know, we could wrestle with this idea of, is this talking about God's sovereignty? Is it talking about man's free will? Is this talking about saved people? Is it talking about lost people? And so just, I guess, frankly, right off the bat, I would say my answer to all of those questions is yes. It's talking about all of those things, but we're going to focus on the broader picture here this morning, okay, of what Christ is teaching, because the larger point of all three aspects of this parable is the same, okay? It's the same larger point, which is this. God joyfully receives every sinner who comes to him in repentance, okay? That's really the whole point of the parable. Now, obviously, this can apply to lost people. It can apply to saved people. This could be a gospel presentation. It could be a picture of a child of God's restoration, for example. But in both examples in this parable here, we see all of this. We see God's sovereignty in all of this. We see man's responsibility as it relates to repentance. And so what we're going to try to do here is just paint the broader picture of the message this morning, and then we'll leave the details to further discussion, hopefully this week in our community groups or in your personal study, which I highly recommend. But after Christ had given the multitudes around him the true cost of discipleship, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, but we left off in Luke 14 with Christ talking about the cost of discipleship, right? And he gave them a warning, right? This is hard. You're going to have to come. If you want to come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross, which is an instrument of death, obviously, right? I'm going to have to die to my wants and my desires and those things and follow Christ completely. So Jesus gives them a warning at the end of that teaching uh, for those who do not forsake all and follow him, right? And he concluded that message by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Luke 14, 35. And then look what happens next. Here we see the first part of our parable in verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. So the tax collectors and the sinners 
are the ones who actually had ears to hear, right? They were the ones who responded to the Lord's command here. Christ had just said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now all of these tax collectors and all of these sinners pull up close and say, we're listening. We're listening. Verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so here we see that the Pharisees and scribes did not have ears to hear, did they? Why not? Well, because they were complaining, right? They were complaining. It's hard to hear the word of God when we are complaining, right? Hearing involves using our ears, not our mouth, James 1.19. But the religious crowd here, they, they really had no intention of hearing Christ anyway. They only wanted to harm Christ. That was their intent. But little did these guys know, these elites, these religious elites here, little did they know how true their statement really was. Because Christ not only received sinners and ate with them in the physical sense, it was actually far more than that. Right? This statement was even more true in the spiritual sense. See Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, for example. Verse 3, so he spoke this parable to them saying, again, this is one parable in three distinct parts. Okay, The word parable here in verse 3 is singular. So this is one parable in three parts. Now, if you're not familiar with what a parable is, basically it's just an earthly story with spiritual meaning. Okay, that's all a parable really is. Verse four, when a man of, or what man of you rather, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So here, Christ uses a man as his illustration. Personally, I don't see a lot of significance in that, except for the fact that, of course, men were shepherds during this time. Uh, and we know that this man was a shepherd because he had sheep right? And so the spiritual meaning, I guess you could say, to the first part of this parable is we see the work of Christ here. We're beginning to see the work of Christ in the first part of this parable in how he shepherds his sheep, okay? That's the spiritual meaning. Christ is, in fact, the great shepherd. We see it in Psalm 23, and his children are, of course, the sheep, verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So, the shepherd's job is to find his sheep. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus commanded his 12 disciples, he said, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Luke 19, verse 10, he says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, so the shepherd seeks for a purpose in order to save, right? And so here we see that only Christ is strong enough to save. Look at the shepherd's shoulders. They represent strength, right? It's our shepherd's joy to carry us home on his shoulders, right? He rejoices all the way back to the fold when he finds one of his own. So Christ seeks us, Christ finds us, and then he carries us back into fellowship with the fold, or you could say the church. Right? Nobody is walking into heaven on their own accord. We must be carried by Christ. It's not by our works. It's not by our strength or by our might. It's by the work of Christ. And so we are carried into the presence of the Father by Christ our Lord. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Amen. Salvation. And restoration are always cause for rejoicing each and every time. So never, ever be embarrassed about the fact that you and I must be carried on the shoulders of our Savior. That is no reason for embarrassment, right? He must carry us back into right fellowship with our Father. So some people tend to get shy about that. Some people tend to get a little embarrassed over their sin and so on, but let me just give a little bit of information here that might be helpful to you if you're in that camp. We're all sinners. Okay, all of us in here, right? We're all sinners. We're in that same boat together. So there's no cause for embarrassment, right? None of us can stand on our own two legs. None of us can work our way into the presence of the Father. We must admit that we're sinners and be carried by our Savior back into the fold. We all need to be carried on the shoulders of Christ. And so my salvation... My restoration, if you will, should never, ever be viewed as a cause for secrecy, for example, right? It should be a cause for celebration. 
like we see here. Verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So who had the ears to hear? That was the tax collectors. That was the sinners, right? Now, who done all the complaining? That was the religious elites. That was the Pharisees. That was the scribes. They were self-righteous. You could say that they were just, but in their own eyes, okay? This was completely uh, in their own eyes. They were self-righteous, okay? Therefore, they excluded themselves, really, from having ears to hear. Now, of course, what they had was only an outward form of godliness, right? Matthew 23 28. But I want you to notice something here. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and by the way, if you shook my hand this morning, I'm not sick. It's my allergies, okay? They're really flaring up on me this morning. I apologize. But notice that there is joy in heaven when even just one sinner repents, okay? Now, I got to tell you, this might be the only reason that I want to get to heaven before the rapture, right here. And, I, and trust me, I hope the Lord comes back before I'm done teaching this morning. Okay, I do. But I would love to be at one of these parties when one sinner comes to faith and there's joy in heaven. Man, how awesome would that be? I think that would just be amazing. When one person puts their faith in Christ, there's joy in heaven. That's pretty fascinating to me. Moving on to the second part of our parable in verse 8. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So, in part two of our parable here, Jesus uses a woman for an illustration. And again, I don't really see any real significance to that in terms of the gender here, okay? But I do see where the woman would clearly represent the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? So, I want to be careful here and just explain no, I'm not saying God the Holy Spirit is female. Of course not. Okay, so don't press too hard on the imagery here. All right, the focus is on the work, not the woman, okay, in this parable. So the Holy Spirit is the one who lights the lamp. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the sanctifying work and sweeps us clean, if you will, throughout the process of our salvation, right? At the beginning of the message, I said we see justification, that's the first part of our parable, right? The shepherd finds the sheep. We are saved. And the second part of our parable, we see the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer, conforming us into the likeness of Christ over time. And then in the third part, we'll see glorification as well. But the Holy Spirit's work is represented here. He sanctifies every believer in Christ. He makes sure that he seals every believer in Christ so that we are present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, this silver coin that's talked about here, it's a Greek drachma, right? Or drachma, I'm sorry. It's a Greek drachma, which is about the same weight as the Roman denarius. Maybe you've read about that. It's a day's wage, roughly, okay? Now, this was worn in a garland of a woman. There's 10 of them. So it's a 10-piece garland, or headband, that was worn by married women back in the day. And it's similar to our modern wedding ring, okay? That's kind of the symbolism here. So what we're learning is that every single coin will be in place. They will be found. They will be securely fastened in the bride's headpiece on wedding day. Okay? Not one of them will be missing, in other words, right? So if you are in Christ by grace through faith today, then you're like one of these pieces of silver in the, the headband, in the garland of the bride, okay? Now trust me, the bridegroom, right, Christ, the bridegroom will not allow his bride to show up to the wedding lacking anything. She will not show up lacking weight. She will not show up lacking wage or worth. Here's what I'm saying. The bride of Christ is not going to show up underweight. And what I mean by that is undervalued. We're talking about silver, right? She won't show up undervalued. She'll be full. She will be complete in Christ. She's not going to show up owing a wage, right? Absolutely not, because her bride price will have been fully paid. She's not going to be lacking any worth whatsoever, because of course the bridegroom will have already proven his worth by his loving sacrifice for her on his cross. And so God the Holy Spirit will absolutely see to it that his bride's lamp is lit, that her house is swept, 
right? Things are in order. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is represented here throughout the life of the Christian because the bride will be presented to Christ holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the peace which I lost. Amen. Again, we see public praise. We see public rejoicing here. And that's always in order whenever what has been lost is now found, right? This is what the church should look like on earth as well, right? Every time a lost sinner is found, there should be rejoicing within the church. Because why? Well, because that's what's going on in heaven, right? They're rejoicing in heaven. So we need to be rejoicing here on earth. Verse 10, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Man, I love that. There's joy in the presence of the angels of God when sinners repent. But you know what too often happens is, you know, we'll just sing another song. We'll say amen and go to the house. How unfortunate is that, right? Here's what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, he said, your kingdom come. This is how we are to pray. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. Exactly right. So heaven's rejoicing. Why aren't we rejoicing every single time a sinner comes to faith in Christ? And I got to tell you, I am super thankful that community church is among those churches that know how to celebrate. I reached out to Jenny this week, BJ's mama. She's traveling now, so pray for her that she'll have a safe trip back. But I asked her if I could share her testimony this morning, and I loved her response. She's like, tell them all. Tell everyone. <laughs> I love that response, and I said, amen, I'll, I'll do it. Um, but it was, I guess, about a year ago, at the end of one of our services here at Community Church, Jenny came down and, and talked to me, and uh, with tears in her eyes, she grabbed both of my hands and said, I want to be saved. I was like, amen. So I made sure and explained the gospel. And I said, would you like to pray? And she said, I don't know how. I said, that's all right. How about I pray? And if that's the desire of you heart, you, you just pray with me, right? And she did. And she was born again and she was saved and she was rejoicing and her and I were rejoicing. And, you know, we're talking about public praise here, right? And so... I said, you know, Jenny, I said, the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now. I hope you know that. And I said, I can't wait till you tell your son, BJ, he is going to love this. And as soon as I said that, Jenny turns around and throws both hands up in the air and said, hey, everyone, I'm saved. And then we started clapping and yeah, praise the Lord. And I'm like, yes, because that's what's happening in heaven. We want what's going on up there to be happening down here, right? So that's just one example. Verse 11, then he said, a certain man had two sons. So the certain man here represents God the Father. And of course, God the Father has many more than just two sons. But <clears throat> these two sons are placed in this story as representatives, okay? Sort of like Jacob and Esau. There were two nations in her womb, so they were representatives. Now, don't forget, the crowd that Christ is addressing here it contains two types of people, right? First, they contain tax collectors and sinners. They are the ones that drew near to hear him. They represent the younger son in the third part of our parable. The second group of people are the Pharisees and scribes, okay? They were the ones who complained, right? They represent the older son in the third part of this parable. And so in the first and second pictures of the parable, we see the lost sheep and the lost coin, right? That's the first two. That is a picture of salvation, or justification, right? Lost sinners being found by their Savior. However, here in the third part of this parable, the lost son, we actually see a picture of restoration, meaning a wayward son has now returned home to his father. In other words, this is someone who knew his father, but had wandered far from home. Okay, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood, or divided to them his livelihood. All right, so the younger son here, he wasn't satisfied with the daily provisions of his father. He wasn't satisfied with the fellowship that he enjoyed with his father. The cost of discipleship, if you will, was hard for him. 
Okay, remember Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Christ had warned about this. And even though the love and the compassion of his father was very intimate, it was very sufficient, he had everything that he needed, the discipline and the responsibilities were too much for the younger son. Okay, but notice this. Oh, he still wanted the inheritance, didn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, if that doesn't explain carnal Christianity... If that doesn't explain cultural Christianity, then I don't know what does, right? How many so-called Christians today don't care anything about a real and authentic relationship with God? Oh, but we still want the inheritance of heaven, right? You know what we used to call this back in the day? We would call people like that. We would just say, man, I think they're just only wanting fire insurance, right? I mean, they don't really want a relationship with God here. They just don't want to go to hell either, right? What makes people think that they're going to want to be with God? The God they're ignoring now for all of eternity, right? That doesn't really make any logical sense, does it? Verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So this younger son head out. He went to the far country and he wasted his possessions on prodigal or literally dissolute living. Okay, this means that he lacked moral judgment. He lacked moral restraint and he indulged in all kinds of, you know, sensual pleasures and vices and so on. But what we see here is that sin always works best in solitude, doesn't it? Privacy, far places, away from the Father. That's breeding ground for sin, right? Believers are always more apt to sin and live according to the flesh when they are far away and out of fellowship with their father. I mean, most of us who call ourselves Christians, we would not even dare do some of the things that we do in the presence of the father that we would do out in the far country, right? I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Isn't that what we're told? Let's just be honest, though. Sin's fun. Sin is fun for a season, Okay, that's very biblical to say that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, actually calls sin a passing pleasure, right? So we're lying to ourselves if we're saying that some sin isn't fun. It might be pleasurable, but it's also passing. Okay, so we gotta be careful here because one day the pleasure is gonna pass and the fun, it's definitely gonna fade and all we're gonna be left with are the consequences of that sin, all we're going to be left with are the consequences of our very short-sighted desires for the far country, right? So whatever it is that's taking me personally out of the presence of my Heavenly Father needs to go away. That needs to be stopped, right? Because whatever it is that's enticing me to travel out into the far country is actually worthless compared to a right relationship with my Heavenly Father. Okay, so perspective is in order here. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, he spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. You see, this is very critical that we understand this because outside of the father's fellowship, when we are outside of fellowship with our father, the only thing that is there is want. It's just want. Nothing can fill the void in our heart like fellowship with our heavenly father can. Right, So what looks like a fruited plain from afar, what looks enticing out in the far country, really, it's, it's a famine waiting to happen. Okay? That's what happened here. When we experience that far country up close, then what we really thought was going to be fruited and fulfilling is, is actually famine. Right? A life of sin outside the fellowship of the Father will only leave me broke, he spent it all, and wanting. Verse 15. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. Okay, so what we see here from this young man now, I think, is, is he's in survival mode. Okay, this guy's in survival mode at this point. I mean, we may try a lot of things to fill that void. We might put a lot of different things in there. Um, but the truth is, nothing is going to fill that void like fellowship with the Father. Okay? Okay. Uh, we might even try to fit in as a citizen 
in another, another country. We may try to look like them. We may try to do the things they do. We might try to fit in with people that we don't normally fit in with, you might say, by joining them, the word says here. Hoping that, man, you know what? If I just go ahead and fully forsake the citizenship of my father's country, then maybe, just maybe, I'll be accepted and find peace and fulfillment by the citizens here in the far country, right? But the reality of all this is, is that whatever we're trying to do to fill that void other than a relationship with our Father, um, it's going to fall short, and it's not going to be fulfilling. It's going to be a passing pleasure, right? And so the far country doesn't care about my feelings whatsoever. That's something I need to understand. They don't really care if I fit in like he was trying to do here. They just need me out in the field feeding the pigs, right? So here's the deal, Christian. Don't fall for the world's agenda, okay? Please don't fall for that. They don't want you to fit in. They just need you uh, to feed the pigs, if you will. Verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So the provisions out there in the far country, they actually pale in comparison to the father's provisions, right? Think about this. As a Jewish boy, you would have to be absolutely desperate to want to fill your own stomach trying to earn an income feeding swine, right? And, and not only that, longing for that same slop that you were feeding them, right? Again, guys, the world does not care for you. The world does not care about you. It doesn't care about me. It only wants to use you, okay? So what he's finding out here is that there's no real friends in a land that is experiencing famine far from God, okay? There's no real friends here. It's every man for himself out in the far country, right? The word says no one gave him anything whatsoever. So now this young man, he's beginning to experience a different kind of desperation, really. And I think it's one that includes shame. Because when that green grass of the far country out there turns into these fields of famine, right? And the cost of living as a citizen in a foreign country drains all of my resources. It exhausts my pride and it actually treats me like an animal. Then I begin to realize, man, all I really needed was right back there at home. That's all I really needed. I begin to realize that, you know what? Maybe I don't have any real friends out here in the far country. Again, no one gave him anything. So the world will only lead me away from God. And it's not going to provide any help whatsoever for me. It'll leave me to myself alone, right? To fend for myself. It's every man for himself. James chapter 4, verse 4 speaks to this. It says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So don't fall for that. Okay, don't fall for the love of the world. We must love the people in the world, but we must not live like the people in the world. This man was finding all this stuff out the hard way, uh, but then something changed. Something happened when his friends all left and he was alone out in the far country in the famine, right? It's interesting. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, bread enough and to spare, actually, and I perish with hunger. So you see, the first step back to the father was when this young man came to himself, right? That's the first step. So <clears throat> one of the things we see here is just how much sin really clouds our vision and impairs our thinking, Right? It changes our perspective about who our Father is and all that He's provided. But God, in His grace, will sometimes bring a famine to get us back into fellowship with Him, right? Sometimes it's only when we're far from God that we actually come to ourselves, right? You've heard the old saying, it's only when I hit rock bottom that I look up, right? That's kind of what we see here. Okay, when sin has separated me from the Father, then repentance is the only way home, right? It's the only way home. Repentance, and now it's, it's a change of mind. That's literally what that means. And so that's what we see here. This man, he, he, become, or he began rather to think clearly. 
again. He came to himself. He snapped out of it, right? His intelligence reasoned that his life was much, much better back home with the Father. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. We read it last week as well, but it, it's applicable here. It says, come now, let us reason together. Let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, th though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Yeah, so how reasonable would it be to remain trapped in the far country, struggling in sin, when even his father's servants had plenty of bread and were sharing some of it, right? And when he had nothing. So that wouldn't be reasonable at all to stay out there. And then notice what happens next. After he came to himself, okay, when he had this change of mind, right? We know that it was actual repentance because we also see a change of direction. And that's important, right? In other words, his actions followed his intellect, he wasn't merely, this wasn't just a mental ascent of, yeah, I need to go back to, back to the Father. No, he put feet on his faith and changed his direction and went back home to the Father. Okay, so here's my understanding of what Christ is teaching us here, at least in the third part, okay? Uh, now, I can clearly see an application in regard to salvation here, but to me, what this whole uh, scenario suggests and really strengthens is the doctrine of eternal security, okay? In other words, when somebody comes to Christ, someone has repented of their sins and they've placed their faith in Christ, then they are saved for all of eternity. That's what we call, quote, the doctrine of eternal security, okay? Now, can that person still sin? Absolutely. They can absolutely still sin. I mean, the prodigal son took his eyes off the father and he placed them on the far country. That's sin, okay? But why didn't he just stay in the pig pen, though? Have you ever thought about that? Why, why didn't he just stay in the pig pen? Why did he ultimately come to himself? I mean, why couldn't he just find another way to keep enjoying those passing pleasures and just remain in the far country as a citizen of that country? Well, I think I can tell you why. And it's because this young man's nature was that of his father, not a pig, right? He had the nature of his father, right? He was his father's son. And those who have known the love and the compassion of the father, meaning those who have been saved, can no longer find lasting comfort or lasting contentment out in the far country. And so they come home. When they come to their senses, they come home, right? Pigs love pig pens. Right? That's for sure. But children who have known the love of their father cannot find lasting satisfaction outside of a loving relationship with their father. That's what's happening here. I mean, sin might be fun for a season. Yes, that's true. But children who are truly saved find their way home to the father for a reason. And it's because they can't find true joy. They can't find that eternal hope. They can't find that lasting peace except through a right relationship with their father, right? One that is in fellowship and not out of fellowship, right? And so when this prodigal son's heart is finally broken over his sin, he longs for restoration. And that's beautiful. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Again, repentance is always the first step back to the father. Okay, you might be 150,000 steps out there in the far country, but restoration is only one step of repentance back toward the father. He came to himself. He realized that he had sinned and then he rose up and he went, right? In other words, he changed his mind and then he changed his direction. He changed his mind about what? His sin. He changed his mind about his sin and he agreed with God about that. He agreed with the father about what sin actually is. And then he turned away from that sin and went home. Verse 19, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so here we see that humility is very, very necessary to true repentance. Okay, listen to Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Amen. You see, a humble, repentant heart, one that's contrite. Man, we just want to be nearer to God at that point, right? A heart that is in rebellion wants to be far from God, but a heart that is humble and contrite wants to be restored. One that has changed its mind and its direction wants to come home, right? And so restoration is a result of that humble repentance. Verse 20, and he arose and came to, this, came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Wow, what a beautiful picture. Now, the Mosaic law gave permission for a father to stone a son to death who had disrespected him like this. The Mosaic law gave permission to stone a son to death for any son who would disgrace their family name like this and waste the father's blessing on living like this. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. Now, I'm sure that might sound pretty harsh to a society like ours where children now run the home, right? But I don't want you to miss the beauty here. This is what's happening because the son of the heavenly father who was standing right there sharing this parable with them would soon be disgraced. He would soon be disrespected and he would soon be punished for all of us. Therefore, here's the beauty. The father can now look upon you and me with compassion rather than contempt. That's the beauty we see here. I want you to notice the love of the father. The love of the father was always there. It was never ending. The compassion from the father, it was always there, right? I mean, it was ever waiting, I guess you could say. He was waiting. He saw his son while he was still a great way off. What does that tell us? He had to be looking. He was looking and waiting, right? What a beautiful picture of the love of our Heavenly Father. But notice something else here, very important. The one thing that the Father did not do. What's something that the Father did not do? We know that He, he was looking, He saw Him, He ran, He fell on His neck, He kissed Him, but what did He not do? He did not follow the prodigal son into the pig pen, Right? The father did not follow the son into the far country. Look, the shepherd was seeking the sheep, verse 4. The woman was searching for the coin, verse 8. But the father waits. The father watches for his wayward children. That's a big difference. Okay, now this is how we know that the first two parts of this parable are about salvation, right? The sheep and the coin. But this part here is about restoration, it's about restoration. Guys, our sin is what separates us from God. Never forget that, okay? Does God love you? 100%. Yes, God loves you. Amen. Is He compassionate towards you? Always. Always. Does He see you even when you're a great way off? Praise the Lord. Yes, He does. And there's no doubt that He is pleased to run to you and fall on your neck and kiss you when you come home, right? But I want you to look here. Notice this, believer. It's only when you come home to him in humility and in repentance, the father will not follow you out into the far country. Why? It's because your citizenship is at his house. Your citizenship belongs there in his country and under his authority. God is love, but God is also very just. Okay. He does not bless our sin at all. Sin has consequences, and therefore what we need to do is come to our senses, right? Before we end up remaining too long in the far country, right? What are the consequences of his sin? Oh, the pig pen, right? The famine, he's broke, right? There are consequences for our sin against the father. But he realizes this, he comes home. And so maybe that's where some of us are today. Maybe we need to come home to our heavenly father, right? Because the far country is going to leave me with one thing for sure, and that's want. That's what I'll get in the far country. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. What a beautiful thing to say. 
You see, the worth that we have here as believers, it's never self-worth. Right? That's not what he's saying. We understand that we are not even worthy of the Father's love. Right? So the worth that you and I have as believers, it comes from the undeserved love given to us by our Heavenly Father. He freely gives us His love because of the sacrifice of His Son. Right? Romans 5.8, they read it this morning. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the truth is we're not worthy to be called sons and daughters of God, but yet God established our worth. God did that by demonstrating his love through the sacrificial death of his son on the cross. Right? So that should make it clear to every single one of us in here this morning just how much you're worth in the eyes of your heavenly father. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. So this is what restoration looks like. I love that, right? Bring out the best robe. Notice this robe had been hanging in the closet. It wasn't given away. How many opportunities would there have been to give away the best robe? But it wasn't given away. It was held back. It was held back for his son, waiting on him to come home. Now the ring, it represents sonship, okay? Or you could even say maturity, so what we're seeing here is that the son had grown up. Okay, he's done some growing up out there. And the feet that were once scarred by just trouncing around in the pig pen are now covered and protected and shod by the sandals given to him by his father. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Amen. You see what's happening here? The gospel of peace reminds us that we didn't do anything whatsoever to earn the gift of salvation. It had to be given to us by the grace of our Father. Verse 23, And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let's eat and be merry. Amen. Let's go. I mean, there's never been a party like this out in the far country. Right? He, he was used to partying, but there was never a party like this. I mean, this young man's best day as a prodigal, could not compare to being treated like a prince in his father's kingdom. Verse 24. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, this is where some people will say, well, okay, now see here, the younger son, well, he lost his salvation. Or maybe he was never even saved to begin with, right? And if you have that view, that's okay. We can still be friends. I just respectfully disagree, okay? And here's why. Because the word of God says that he was his father's son. In this entire parable, he was never not the father's son at any point. Of course, he lost fellowship. Yes, he lost fellowship through a sinful lifestyle, but he never lost his sonship, right? And we're about to find out that even the older son, the one who stayed back at the house, was in fact just as, quote, lost, if you will, in his own struggle with sin. And so both of these sons here in their own way needed to come home to the father. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Yeah, so the older son was just out there working in the field while the celebration and the dancing and all that was taking place in the house. He was just out there working like a good little legalist. Verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And so one of these things that we're about to learn here this morning is that we can be close to the house and still far away from the father, right? We can work in the church. We can do all of the Christian things that we want to do. That will not make me a Christian, okay? The older brother here represents the Pharisees and the scribes who try to earn favor with God, okay, by their own brand of legalism, their outward show of religiosity, right? While the younger son here, he represents the tax collectors and the sinners who finally had ears to hear and understood their sin and turned from that sin in repentance and come home. Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Praise the Lord. The father will spare no expense to the son or daughter 
who comes home. Verse 28. <clears throat> but he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, this is interesting because you see the younger brother, he came to his father. Verse 20, right? But the older brother would not go in. So what did the father do? Come to him. Right? He came out and he pleaded with him. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the older brother was just as out of fellowship as the younger brother was. They were both out of fellowship with their father. He just tried to look more righteous about it. He just tried to look more righteous in his sin, right? Whereas the younger brother, he looked like a pig pen, smelled like a pig pen. There was no doubt he'd been sinning, right? He was out in the far country. But the older brother, he had this appearance of holiness right there at home. But in reality, he was just as sinful. He was just as entitled as the younger brother. And so he might as well have been out in the far country because that's exactly where his heart was. His feet were at home, but his heart was out in the far country, right? Jesus might have said to him, he didn't, but he might have. He might have called him a whitewashed tomb. He had called other legalists that in Matthew 23, 27, because they just had an outward appearance of holiness. But on the inside, what does he say? They were full of dead men's bones, right? Verses 28 through, or 29 and 30. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours, it wasn't his brother, right? It was this son of yours who came has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. Okay, so here we see a different kind of party. Right? This is a pity party, okay? We cannot let self-righteousness creep into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Don't do it. The older son never deserved any more than the younger son did. Okay, Both of them were completely unworthy of the Father's love and His inheritance. It was only by the Father's grace that either one of them had anything. Okay, The difference is, at this point, the younger son had figured that out. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you're always with me and all I have is yours. Yeah, so the truth is the older son, he could enjoy the same celebration as the younger son. All he had to do was come to himself, right? And return his heart to where his feet had always been. Jesus said in Matthew 15, eight, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's what Jesus said. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. So in closing, just a couple of things to think about. Maybe you're more like the younger son this morning. I mean, maybe you've lost your way a bit. Maybe you've wasted too much time out in the far country. Maybe you've never known the love of the father. Maybe you need to come home for salvation, right? Maybe you currently find yourself still in the far country. If that's you this morning, then I just want to encourage you to come home. Come home to the Father, right? He's been waiting for you. Make no mistake about that. Maybe you're more like the older son this morning. Maybe you haven't really wandered off physically into the far country. Maybe you've been a decent human being your whole life. Maybe you still do churchy things and you know you do all the right stuff. But maybe your heart has wandered off into the far country. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you've been serving in the church for many, many years. But maybe you've reached that point where religion and routine have allowed your heart to become dull to the things of God. If that's you this morning, then can I encourage you to just go ahead and leave that religion and leave that routine behind and come home to the Father so that you can find a real, authentic relationship with the God who loves you. He's watching for you. His arms are open wide. The truth is, guys, it doesn't matter how close or how far you are from the Father's house, right? 
What matters is your relationship with him. Okay? And that can only come by grace through faith in his perfect son. So I just want to encourage all of you, all of us, come home from the far country, right? Restoration, again, is only one step of repentance away. Because why? Because Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, who, by the way, is the unmentioned third son in this parable, he has already done perfectly what neither the younger nor the older son could ever do. Jesus Christ never sinned. Although Christ came to the far country, right? This boy went. Christ came to the far country. He came here far away from his father's house. He wasn't running from home. He was running to our rescue. The perfect son of God was sent to do the father's perfect will. He didn't come to the far country to waste his life, but to sacrifice it. You see the difference? He didn't need to kill the fatted calf because he himself was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Christ was the sacrifice. He doesn't need a robe. We need his robe. We need his robe of righteousness. Christ, the father's perfect son, is also the perfect prince of peace here. And he has come to clothe each and every one of us little rebellious prodigals with his robe of righteousness so that we might grow up and mature in our faith, having our feet shod with the gospel of peace. You want peace in your heart? Come home to the Father. You're not going to find lasting peace out in the far country, right? So if you've never confessed your sins, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone by faith for your salvation, would you do that this morning? Don't waste another day in the far country. If you're a Christian, and your heart has wandered far from your father, then it's time for, for us to come to our senses as well, isn't it? Maybe you have served, like I said. Maybe you've been faithful in those things, but your heart hasn't been in it. Come home to the father this morning. His arms are open wide for you too. So just as Jesus came running to our rescue, would you come home running to the father this morning? We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for this time in your word and in your presence among your people. Lord, would you have your way? Would you speak to every heart here and every heart that hears this message? Call us home. Help us to come to our senses, to come to ourselves. The sin that has clouded our perception of you, the sin that has clouded our perception of what pleasure is, and where we can find it, Lord, please forgive us. Help us to think clearly again about what sin is and who you are and the satisfaction that we can only find in a right relationship with our Father. Help us to stop looking elsewhere. There's no peace in the far country. There might be pleasure, but it's passing. Famine is coming. We'll lose everything we have and all we'll be left with is want. But all we have is everything, all we need rather is all that you have provided in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross is enough. The blood of Christ is enough. The free gift of salvation given by our Heavenly Father is absolutely enough. So help us to come home back into your presence, Lord, in humble repentance. Restore us to a right fellowship with you, Lord. My prayer this morning is that if anyone has never known the love of the Father, that they would come home, that they would turn from their sin, put their faith in Jesus, believing he's the son of God who died on the cross for their sin and rose again so that they could have hope of eternal life in him. I pray that they would believe that this morning and come home. I pray for the Christian out there who's struggling in sin, can't have the breakthrough. They, they just can't stop. Lord, that struggle is real. We need your help. I pray, Lord, that you would give them victory over that struggle that they would not just change their mind about it, but they would 
get their feet moving back toward the Father and come home. I pray for the Christian out there who's just doing all the right things, but their heart is dull and there's no fire and it's just, it's been a while. I pray for that Christian to come home, find their hope, find their joy again, find that peace in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I just pray that you'd have your way, Lord, this morning. Be glorified. We admit we're sinners. We don't deserve your love. But Lord, the picture you gave us in your word today is so beautiful. How you wait, how you look, and how you bless us with so many blessings that certainly we don't deserve and could never earn. It's all waiting back home with the Father. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.